tonight on NBC. Will everyone in the cardiac surgical department please raise your hands? Thank you. You're all fired. Based on an inspiring true story. Any department who places billing above care, you will be terminated. One doctor will break every rule. Just tell me what you need, what your patients need. To inspire a revolution. Let's get into some trouble. Let's be doctors again. From the network that brings you This Is Us, New Amsterdam, tonight on NBC. This podcast is brought to you by Simply Light. Introducing Simply Light Lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75% less sugar and calories because it tastes so good. and at the same time costs less. The Betty Crocker cake mixes make perfect cakes. When your husband Although the ration was intended to provide sufficient food to sustain five men for one day... You're listening to The Feast, where history is served with a dash of hot sauce or a squeeze of lemon. Where we look behind those dates and names everyone knows to the meals that made them. I'm your host, Laura Carlson. And each week, we're bringing you stories of how revolutions can start at lunch counters or how empires can end over dessert. Some of the biggest moments in history happened over dinner, and we're giving you a seat at the table. Tell me if you've heard this one. In the 1700s in revolutionary America, Betty Flanagan a New York innkeeper, wanted to show her support for the American revolutionary cause. When she heard some revolutionary soldiers would be staying with her, she snuck away to her neighbor's farm, a neighbor who just so happened to be a known supporter of the Redcoats, and stole a chicken. Plucking a few feathers out of the offended fowl's tail, she stuck them proudly in the drink she served her soldiers, doing her bit to show some revolutionary support, and behold... The cocktail was born. Buy it? Neither do I. But that's the thing about cocktails. They love stories. Cocktails and storytelling go together like the best mixed drinks. Rum and Coke, gin and tonic, champagne and orange juice. They play to each other's strengths. All stories get better with a drink or two. And that goes double, it seems, when you're talking about the history of drinks themselves. The biggest cocktail festival in the world has this fact built into its very name. Tales of the Cocktail. And the history behind big cocktails has become a big business. The cocktail historian David Wondrich has published several best-selling books on the origins of some barfly favorites, including an entire book on the history of punch. In 2016, a documentary exploring the history of the iconic drink of New Orleans, the Sazerac, debuted at the Atlanta Film Festival and was named Best Crowdfunded Project of the Year. And more recently, the Endless Knot video series on etymology just did a great video on YouTube on the history of the Americano and Negroni, tracing these cocktail names all the way back to the late antique Visigoths. So it seems... The story, or the history, of the cocktail is more popular than ever. But there's a problem. Stories are great and all, but historical details tend to get a bit blurry with a drink in hand. 
Separating fact from fiction in cocktail origin stories can be tricky. Stories behind cocktails that have been handed down over time tend to have few, what historians would call, reliable source material. And cocktail invention stories have a way of getting a bit, well, embellished over time. Which, hey, can happen when you're swapping stories over a few drinks. But as cocktails continue their comeback, the days of these misty origin stories may be numbered. Writer Wayne Curtis explores this very topic in a recent episode of the Southern Foodways Alliance podcast, Gravy, which, if you don't listen to, by all means you should. Curtis points out an interesting trend, that as mixology, or the professionalization of the cocktail trade increases, people are more so than ever before trying to sift out the facts from the fiction in these stories. What, if any, sources can confirm these, if you excuse the phrase, tall tales of the cocktail? This is all well and good, but today we're on a different quest, chasing down the murky origins of a big, and until now pretty much ignored part of cocktail culture. Because cocktails are way more than just drinks, right? There are cocktail bars, cocktail dresses, shrimp cocktails, and of course, the cocktail party. All built around this whole realm of mixed drinks. And the history of many of these cocktail customs are just as murky as the cocktails themselves. Today, we're going to peer behind the legends of one of these cocktail components, the cocktail party. While new books are being published every day about the origins of the Manhattan, the Martini, there's that documentary about the origins of the Sazerac, to be followed soon by more films on the history of drinks like the French 75 or the Clover Club. But try Googling the origins of the cocktail party, or even take a look at the surprisingly brief entry for the cocktail party on Wikipedia. You'll find a short paragraph talking vaguely about its invention by Alec Waugh, older brother of the novelist Evelyn Waugh, in London in 1924. But more on him later. Even more vaguely, there's discussion about a certain Mrs. Julius S. Walsh Jr., who may or may not have held the first ever cocktail party in St. Louis, Missouri, in May of 1917. Now, if you've done your math correctly, you'll know this means that, according to Wikipedia at least, the venerable institution of the cocktail party is exactly 100 years old this month. But where are the big celebrations? The parties ringing in the rise of the pre-dinner social hour that brought the mini blints and the Manhattan together in perfect harmony. Where are the raised glasses and the toasts to this mysterious Mrs. Julius S. Walsh Jr.? Why aren't there statues to the woman who may have given the world the shrimp cocktail, the cocktail dress, the home cocktail set? What inspired this woman to host a cocktail party? And was it really the first party like this in history? And who was this Mrs. Walsh anyway? The one-line sentence in Wikipedia doesn't give us much to go on, except that she apparently lived in St. Louis in 1917, and was married to one Mr. Julius S. Walsh Jr., and clearly had a thing for mixed drinks. Well, today, we're going to dig a little deeper into this cocktail party origin story 
and this mysterious Mrs. Walsh, who, as we'll find out, had a life that deserved way more than a one-line footnote in history. Hers is a story of prohibition, of southern heiresses, of Broadway, of American culinary icons, of feminism, of racism, of love and love lost. It's even a story of murder. Don't worry. We'll get to all these stories and more. We'll even throw in a cocktail recipe or two. But let's at least start with the mysterious Mrs. Walsh's given name, which was Clara. And long before Clara became Mrs. Julius S. Walsh Jr., she was Clara D.D. Bell. And Miss Clara D.D. Bell did not like being told what to do. And to be honest, there were few people who tried. It was hard to argue with the wealthiest woman in Kentucky, even if she had yet to turn 20. Clara's wealth had come with her father's sudden death in 1892. Now at the time, it was rare for women to inherit. Wills usually favored sons or husbands. But Clara was an only child, and only eight years old when her father had died. And her father's will had been specific. A trust would be set up for her, taking care of her education and well-being until the age of 21, when she would fully inherit a sum worth almost $2 million, making Clara one of the richest women in the state. So from the tender age of eight, Miss Clara D.D. Bell found herself a rare bird in Kentucky society, a woman of independent means. Which meant Clara was free from what society presumed should be the main occupation for a young woman in the late 19th century, the hunt for a good husband. At a time when women were discouraged from working outside the home, marriage was all too often the key to financial security. Landing a good husband meant not worrying about going hungry. But Clara didn't have to worry about any of this. She had enough money to live well for a few lifetimes. So Clara could spend her days outdoors, or more frequently, in the stable, pursuing her favorite hobby, horses. This was Kentucky, after all, home of the famous Derby the epicenter of horse culture in America. But as a woman, even a rich woman, Clara's love of horses was considered unusual, drawing the interest of many a reporter in turn-of-the-century America. In 1903, when Clara was 19, the Boston Daily Globe ran a page-length feature on her. She is not conventional, the article said, next to a picture of her sitting proudly atop one of her horses. And even in staid Kentucky, has dared to adapt the more modern way of riding astride. She is cultured, having been educated at the best institutions of learning. But being fond of home and outdoor life, she has gone as little into society as is possible. Newspapers, particularly the society pages, were fascinated by Clara Bell, her wealth, and particularly her independence streak. She regularly made headlines as she became a consummate horsewoman, buying and selling thoroughbreds throughout the U.S. and Europe, even competing herself in local horse races. But Clara hadn't rejected everything of what was considered to be a 
proper lady's upbringing. She attended an elite finishing school in New York City and gamefully attended some society events all over the United States with her mother, including trips to an elite resort in Hot Springs, Virginia, where she met her future husband, one Mr. Julius S. Walsh Jr. of St. Louis, Missouri, when she was only 14 years old. But the couple had waited to wed until Clara had turned 21, the age that finally allowed her to take control of her fortune. Now, the timing seems suspicious. Before we accuse Mr. Walsh Jr. of gold digging, it's worth noting that Walsh came from quite a bit of money himself. More than that, at the tender age of 27, Julius had become the vice president of the St. Louis Suburban Railway Company and was worth an estimated $10 million, the wealthiest man in the city. Clara's money barely made a dent in Walsh's own fortune. And more likely, the two families had agreed it was a worthwhile match because of this. Walsh wasn't interested in Clara's money, and Clara wasn't interested in Walsh's. And in an unusual move for the time, even after their marriage, Clara retained complete control of her money, including ownership of her childhood home in Lexington, Kentucky. Clara insisted she wouldn't be dependent on any man, even if he was worth $10 million. She would continue to ride, race, and travel at her leisure, occasionally dropping by the Walsh house in St. Louis, if she had the time. And even as a married woman, Clara attained that famous independent streak. In 1907, less than two years after her marriage to Julius Walsh, Clara bought rooms in the newly opened Plaza Hotel in New York City. As a permanent resident of the hotel, Clara spent most of each year on the East Coast, occasionally defining her time between her opulent rooms in Manhattan, her family home in Lexington, and every once in a while the Walsh family home in St. Louis. And her lifestyle continued to make headlines. In a 1912 New York horse race, an African-American jockey racing one of Clara's horses was barred from competing after a fellow white competitor complained. Clara boycotted the rest of the events, removing all her horses from the competition. But what does all this have to do with cocktails? Well, as we know, Clara had her own ideas about things, rarely letting society or convention get in the way of what she wanted to do. This can help us get a handle on how it was Clara Walsh may have been the first to hold a cocktail party in 1917. Of course, as we've seen, cocktails were nothing new by the 1910s. Mixed drinks had been a common part of American drinking since the real, or more likely imagined, days of Betty Flanagan. While you may not have found Cosmopolitans or Mai Tais on a bar menu, complex mixed drinks were already a large part of American drinking. If you remember our episode on Andrew Jackson and his inauguration in 1829, you'll know alcoholic punch had long been a favorite on both sides of the Atlantic. And things got decidedly more complex in the mixed drink department as the 19th century progressed. By 1862, famed bartender Jerry Thomas compiled a manual of cocktails designed to help out drink makers in hotels, saloons, and private clubs all over the country as mixed drinks became more popular. The Bartender's Guide, or How to Mix Drinks, has long been considered the first proper cocktail manual, 
including some of the earliest recipes for the champagne cocktail, along with other mixed drinks with brandy, gin, and whiskey. After its publication, it became so popular, it was reprinted in 1876 and 1887 as American taste for cocktails grew. But where were the women in all of this? Well, back in Revolutionary America, there may have been more than one reason that the mythical inventor of the cocktail was Betty, not Ben Flanagan. Strong spirits like whiskey had long been gendered in British and early American society as masculine, not considered appropriate for women to drink, and certainly not straight. Yet while some mixed drinks, particularly punch, were considered part and parcel of male socializing, ones that men often enjoyed in private clubs or amongst friends, any generic dilution of spirits with syrups, water, or other added ingredients was often considered effeminate. Popular drinks of the 18th and 19th century that tended to be lower in alcohol and slightly sweeter were largely associated with women. Take the claret cup. Usually a combination of the fortified wines claret and sherry combined with sugar and lemon. It was almost exclusively considered a woman's drink. Featuring, for example, in more than a few scenes in Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. Societal expectations of women and their relationship to alcohol in the 19th century were nothing if not contradictory. While alcohol could be a benchmark of a man's social life, gathering around a flowing punch bowl in his private club, or enjoying a beer in the local saloon, societal norms for women wavered between being a good hostess, including, of course, serving alcohol as part of a meal at home, and not being seen to partake herself. Entrances to public saloons often were divided between men and women, with the women's entrance frequently around the back to a separate area known as the wine room, a term that increasingly became a synonym for a brothel. Women were often recommended not to partake at all. An 1860 etiquette guide advised that no lady should take wine with dinner. Yet customs for formal Victorian meals often hinged on specific alcohols paired to each course. Such traditions may even have been the precursor to the cocktail party, as a pre-dinner social hour with light snacks. As Catherine Gilbert Murdoch states in her excellent book, Domesticating Drink, Women, Men, and Alcohol in America, the strong Victorian tradition of starting a formal dinner with raw oysters alongside a glass of sherry may have been the first kernel towards what was eventually pre-dinner cocktails and canapes. From the late 19th to the early 20th century, a woman's relationship to alcohol was all too often determined by her relationship to a man. In 1893, a book called Beverages and Sandwiches for Your Husband's Friends proved the point, in which the author, one Mrs. Alexander Orr Bradley, included over 35 recipes for alcoholic drinks, with the implication being that the woman making them, of course, would never drink them herself. Even with these kinds of recipes, public opinion waffled about the idea of women making, serving, or even drinking cocktails in polite society. Several cocktail companies tried to advertise to women specifically. The inventors of the pre-made cocktail mix, Hublines, even marketed cocktails as health beverages in an effort to appeal to women in the late 19th century. Recipe books designed for women readers continued to include cocktail recipes, 
such as the Book of Beverages, issued by the Daughters of the American Revolution in 1904. But a strong societal norm remained, that although women might make cocktails for their husband, it wasn't exactly polite for women to be seen drinking them, particularly outside the home. Temperance activists in the early 20th century admonished women to avoid places that served cocktails. The London magazine Truth warned women of, quote, vermouth cocktails and fast men in 1910. Let's back up for a minute here. We've already seen several trends that may have given rise to the iconic cocktail party as we know it today. There was already the association of socializing with mixed drinks, thanks to old favorites like the punch bowl, already popular for a hundred years by the dawn of the 20th century. There was also the association of having a stiff drink with a small snack to begin a meal, perhaps coined by the tradition of sherry and oysters at Victorian dinner parties. But here's where the language gets funny. Around the turn of the century, the term cocktail could apply to both a kind of drink and a type of seafood dish served. This podcast is brought to you by Simply Light. Introducing Simply Light Lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75% less sugar and calories because it tastes so good. The very beginning of the meal. Of course, this is where we get the term shrimp cocktail, but around the 1890s and 1900s, other seafood could be served cocktail style as well, particularly oysters. In 1897, the Kansas paper, the St. Joseph Weekly Gazette, claimed that oyster cocktail parties were the latest fad in polite Kansas society. Even President Theodore Roosevelt enjoyed an oyster cocktail at a banquet held in his honor in San Francisco in 1903. But in terms of the oyster cocktail parties, it's impossible to know whether the parties just served oysters or oysters alongside a stiff martini or Manhattan. But when did the cocktail and the term cocktail party refer to cold drinks, not cold shellfish. The same year good old Teddy was slurping oyster cocktails in San Francisco, newspapers began to report on another growing trend. Parties with a focus exclusively on mixed drinks. These cocktail parties were almost always illicit affairs, full of scandal and debauchery. In 1903, temperance advocates railed against a cocktail party held by the infamous New York actress and socialite, Lily Langtree, where jeweled gin suckers could purchase these evil beverages at 50 to 60 cents apiece. The same year, a paper in Illinois published a story of a young actress who ended up the unwitting host to not only a cocktail party, but a murder. When a tussle turned deadly in the actress's hotel room, after a round of drinks had been served, it was the cocktails the papers blamed. The woman complained that she hadn't served the cocktails. They had been sent to her hotel room without her permission. But the paper's tone was condemnatory all the same. Ladies of good repute would never find themselves at a cocktail party. In fact, for the next several years, Cocktail parties had nothing but a bad reputation in the papers. 
A jug of poison Manhattans caused at least two deaths at a Brooklyn cocktail party in 1906, while a woman cited her husband's love of cocktail parties as grounds for divorce in 1907 Chicago. Even as late as 1913, the New York Women's Committee of 50 made it their mission statement to rid the country of any women's club that offered cocktails at tea parties, along with other travesties like betting on card games like bridge. In 1910, the Anti-Saloon League, which supported Prohibition, capitalized on the negative press the parties were receiving, issuing a pamphlet that simply read, Can you imagine a cocktail party in heaven? But like it or not, the cocktail tide was turning. When the New York Times Society pages reported on Americans summering in France in 1913, an elite group that included the Vanderbilts, the article mentioned the growing trend of hosting cocktail parties, described as, quote, men and women guests gathering before dinner, gossiping at small tables, and drinking mysterious mixtures. It seems the cocktail party had to go international before it was accepted back on American soil. But that didn't mean that everyone was suddenly slurping pre-dinner martinis after 1913. Remember, U.S. Prohibition, something that put a real dent in public cocktail parties, took effect only seven short years later. All this brings us back to the question of Mrs. Clara Bell Walsh in May 1917. It should be pretty clear by now that cocktail parties were being held long before this point. So why all the fuss over this one party in St. Louis? And if we look even closer, it turns out that not only was May 1917 comparatively late to claim the first ever cocktail party, it wasn't even Clara Bell Walsh's first cocktail party. Less than one year earlier, in December of 1916, Clara Bell Walsh and her husband Julius had thrown something the papers had taken to calling a baby ball. Held at the St. Louis Country Club, guests were invited to dress up like infants and children. The ballroom at the Country Club was transformed into a giant nursery, complete with an adult-sized slide. And of course, there were the cocktails, served in oversized baby bottles. Now, costume choices aside, you can't fault Clara and Julius's choice of location. The St. Louis Country Club's prized bartender, Tom Bullock, was a cocktail master. Less than a year after this party, he would become the first African-American to publish his own cocktail manual, called The Ideal Bartender. Although, understandably, he neglects to mention any mixed drinks suitable for baby bottles. So why all the fuss over the 1917 party? Well, Mrs. Clarabelle Walsh may not have ushered in the age of the cocktail party. She may have been responsible for another time-honored social occasion. The boozy brunch. While a societal convention had long agreed that the time for mixed drinks was late afternoon or early evening, perhaps an evolution from the Victorian pre-dinner snack of an oyster and sherry, Clara's cocktail parties were held scandalously, right after church on Sunday afternoon. 
Guests were free to stop by and enjoy a cocktail prepared by a, quote, professional drink mixer, as the papers put it, in the Walsh's private bar in their home. The height of pre-prohibition decadence. The scandalous new time for these parties made more than one newspaper sit up and take notice. The Tacoma Times of Washington even commented on cocktail trends of the day. While old-fashioned guests may have ordered martinis or Manhattans, the trendier partygoers went with Sazeracs, Bronx cocktails, or even cloverleafs. Not up on your Bronx cocktail ingredients? Don't worry, we'll put recipes for these early 20th century favorites up on our website, straight from Tom Bullock's 1917 Cocktail Guide. But the question still remains. Why has this party been mistaken for the first ever cocktail party? The hint may be in the title of the Tacoma Times' article. Cocktail parties are new society stunt, it read. But the reporter here isn't talking about cocktail parties themselves as new, but the new feature of holding them on Sunday afternoon. As the reporter says, quote, filling a long-felt Sunday want in society circles. Apparently, Clarabelle Walsh had solved a St. Louis problem of long, boring Sunday afternoons with drinks. Not that everyone was on board with Clarabelle Walsh's new plans on how to spend your Sunday afternoons. In an interesting turn of events, instead of finding fault with the women who attended the party, a Kansas newspaper tutted how such parties did nothing to improve the reputation of St. Louis businessmen. The popular American socialist paper, Appeal to Reason, was so horrified at the prospect of Sunday afternoon drinks, particularly during the height of World War I, they felt the need to issue a preface to the article describing the Walsh party. Quote, To any man that has even a thimbleful of brains, this news item should bring home the fact that America is going the way of Rome and that nothing but a social revolution can possibly save it. By throwing... Not only a cocktail party, but a cocktail party every Sunday afternoon. It's clear Clara Walsh's independent streak hadn't lessened over time. But the condemning attitude towards alcohol seen in several newspapers was one that at least a few other Americans shared. Less than three years later, the Volstead Act was passed, and Prohibition officially went into effect in January of 1920, lasting until its repeal in 1933 which put a rather abrupt stop to the Walsh's cocktail parties. That is, any public cocktail parties in America, for over a decade. Clara's Sunday cocktail parties may have been put on hold during Prohibition, but that didn't mean her life was. She continued raising horses and living an extravagant life based out of her apartments in New York City. Her ever-growing circle of friends included some of the top names in New York society, as well as those in the horse racing and gambling worlds. Clara's name even came up as a possible suspect when Joseph Brown Elwell, famed card player and horse racer, was found shot dead in his apartment in June of 1920, leading to an investigation that would go on to become one of the most famous cold cases in New York City history. Elwell and Clara had been known close friends and several pieces of evidence from the case suggested they may have had a, uh, well, slightly closer relationship. Notes from Clara were found in Elwell's possessions when he died, 
but Clara was never charged and the murder was never solved. And less than three years later, another scandal. In 1923, Clara divorced Julius Walsh, citing the 1920s equivalent of irreconcilable differences. After the divorce, Clara moved permanently into her rooms at the Plaza Hotel, where she would live for the rest of her life. Now, in the 1920s, divorce was still quite the scandal, particularly in high society. But Clara refused to acknowledge it. Instead, she took to wearing black, insisting she was a widow, not a divorcee. Even after Julius Walsh died suddenly in 1929, Clara never remarried, preferring the company of her friends, horses, and dogs. But what had Prohibition done to the cocktail party? Unfortunately for many, the Volstead Act had made the profession of drink mixer basically impossible in the United States, and many bartenders who had made names for themselves at famous bars such as at the Waldorf Astoria, the Plaza, or even the St. Louis Country Club either had to find themselves a new line of work or head to Europe, where alcohol still flowed freely. So it seemed that the art of the cocktail was dead in America, and with it, the cocktail party. But interestingly enough, prohibition may have actually improved the reputation of cocktails overall, particularly American society's acceptance of women drinking cocktails. See, a law against the sale of alcohol may have been one thing, but getting people to stop drinking was something else entirely. And Catherine Gilbert Murdoch, author of Domesticating Drink, has an interesting theory about how prohibition changed societal norms towards drinking, particularly with regard to gender. With the famous hotel bars and cocktail lounges closed for the better part of 13 years, drinking moved to the private sphere. Yes, to the speakeasy, but more often into the home. Women who had never been welcome in public spheres of alcohol like those hotel bars or men's social clubs, now could enjoy a cocktail at home without reproach. As support for Prohibition nosedived throughout the 1920s, a woman drinking a cocktail all of a sudden was now a positive symbol of rebellion. In 1930, the magazine Vogue published an article called The Anti-Prohibitionette, arguing that a woman lifting a presumably alcohol-filled glass, was a thoroughly modern gesture. Women of control and good taste, according to the magazine, were apt to be militant and conscientious objectors to prohibition. The article painted a rosy picture of the women who were likely to reject the Volstead Act. They were, quote, women with a certain freedom of mind, women who went out to fight for a vote. In the war, they drove ambulances. They are athletic, they were the first to drink cocktails. They pile up the qualities of mind and manners that make leaders. And so from women of ill repute to athletic leaders of tomorrow, the image of women who drank cocktails had changed dramatically in a little less than 20 years' time. And despite Prohibition's best efforts... The scene was set for a roaring revival of mixed drinks when the 21st Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, officially repealing the Volstead Act, came into effect in 1933. Cocktails 
were back on, including, of course, the iconic cocktail party, which came back into fashion with abandon. And this new craze for pre-dinner drinks helped to launch the career of one James Beard, whom you might know from a little thing called the James Beard Awards, the Academy Awards of the food world. During the late 1930s, Beard and a friend had opened a small catering company in New York City called Hors d'Oeuvre Incorporated, designed to provide light meals and snacks that went with the growing craze for cocktails. The company was such a success, it led to Beard lecturing and giving classes on the topic. By 1940, Beard published his first book, Hors d'Oeuvres and Canapes, with a key to the cocktail party. For James Beard, food at a cocktail party was serious business. In chapter one of his book, he writes, The cocktail party no longer means a bottle of gin, a can of sardines, and a package of potato chips from the corner grocery. It has become a defined part of the entertainment schedule for every household, large and small. I look upon it as the 20th century salon. Now, we recently tried some of his book's recommended hors d'oeuvres to serve with cocktails, including Roquefort stuffed raw mushrooms, Danish ham rolls, and hot curried fruit. We'll put recipes for these on the website in case you too want to have a 1940s-themed cocktail party, but you may want to skip over the hot curried fruit. It involves dunking fresh fruit into a hot, thick sauce made of curry, white wine, raisins, shaved coconut, and Brazil nuts. It wasn't really for us, but hey, your call. After the 1930s, the cocktail party became a fixture of the American social scene, eventually giving us those Mad Men-style evenings of old fashions and martinis, not to mention the 1960s tiki bars, and even the infamous swinging key parties of the 1970s. But the cocktail party's pre-prohibition origins soon faded into the realm of myth and legend. So much so that by 1975, the novelist Alec Waugh, brother of Evelyn Waugh, claimed in an article in Esquire that he, in fact, had invented the cocktail party back in London in 1924. Clearly, he didn't know his history. And whatever did happen to Clara Bell Walsh? Well, she continued throwing parties till the end of her days, and her rooms at the Plaza Hotel were an endless parade of actors, politicians, and socialites. She counted both Mae West and Queen Mary of England as close, personal friends. As she grew older, her parties became legendary for new reasons, as she began to serve more and more items evoking her Kentucky roots, from smoked ham from her own farms in Kentucky to fine bourbon. One partygoer commented that Clara Walsh's were the only silent cocktail parties in town, as people were too busy eating the fine ham than to worry about the drinks. And in 1957, only months before her death, she threw a huge party to celebrate the plaza's 50th anniversary, an honor she claimed as the hotel's longest living resident. When the New York Times asked what kind of cocktails she would be serving at the event, she insisted she would be drinking only pure Kentucky bourbon that evening. Martinis, she said with disgust, are rot gut. The Feast is written and produced by me, Laura Carlson. Technical direction by Mike Port. 
who gamefully tried hot curried fruit with me this week. Let's just say the Roquefort raw mushrooms were delicious by comparison. And at least we had a cloverleaf cocktail to wash it all down with. If you'd like to try some of James Beard's cocktail party recipes for yourself, don't forget to check out our website at thefeastpodcast.org, as well as how to make a Bronx cocktail and cloverleaf cocktail according to Tom Bullock's 1917 instructions. We'll also put links to the gravy podcast we mentioned at the top of the episode, the documentary on the history of the Sazerac, as well as the alliterative Endless Knots video on the Americano. The site's also full of great newspaper clips about Clara Bell Walsh and the evolution of the cocktail party from the late 19th century through to the end of Prohibition. And don't forget to subscribe to The Feast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Subscribing is easy. You can sign up via our subscribe page at thefeastpodcast.org. Also, don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at feast underscore podcast. We'll be posting more early 20th century cocktails and other tidbits from Clarabelle Walsh's life. We've got one more episode this season before we take a short break in mid-May. But this month officially marks our one-year anniversary here at the Feast. It's hard to believe, but we've been telling stories of great meals and history for exactly one year now. And we couldn't have done this without you. Thank you so much for your support. We're in the middle of planning next season currently. So if you have any suggestions for upcoming episodes, we'd love to hear them. Drop us a line by sending an email to thefeast at thefeastpodcast.org or send us a message via our website. Thanks again, and we'll be back in two weeks' time with more Meals That Made History. I'm Laura Carlson, and this is The Feast. <laughs>